Sidetrack. Hello and welcome to Sidetrack, the podcast where we delve deep into the intricacies of international politics and global affairs. Like, we only do that these days, actually. <laughs> I'm Lewis, and with me is co-host Yella. Hi! Along with us today are our special guests, Rodrigue and Charles, your guides on this journey through the complex and often turbulent world of international relations. Can we say hi? Hi. Hi. I'm Charles. Um... Do I say what I study? Sure, yeah, sure. Whatever you want to say. I study Arabic, Persian, and IR, and I'm no expert by any means, but this is fun. So yeah, that's, <laughs> that's the main reason. Um, I'm Rodrigue. Um, I'm French, so Charles and I come from the same high school, which Ooh. is quite interesting, actually. So we've known each other for a while. Um, both international relations students. I would say, like, <laughs> we're no expert by any means either. We're second years. I'm happy to learn what we can. We do have strong opinions on certain things, though, and we're eager to share them. <laughs> no, no. This is a platform to express them. Well, yeah, exactly. So we're looking forward to that. Thank you for inviting us. Um, thank, oh, you thank you very you much. So much. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, so let's try to make this interesting, I guess. So today we'll be discussing international relations in the Middle East, Europe, and Africa. So whether you're a student or international relations student, Okay, a policy enthusiast or just someone curious about the world around you, this episode is sure to provide you with a wealth of information and perspectives. Right, let's get started with our first segment. So... Shall we begin with the discussing the latest developments in the Middle East? Yeah. Perhaps we can go into first, um, like what's happening generally around the Middle East. Charles, I believe you're the person. <laughs> Fair. Um, okay. Well, it's we are currently talking uh, right in the middle of probably one of the most violent episodes of um, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, a ceasefire has been announced, so that's a five-day ceasefire in exchange for 50 hostages. We'll see how that pans out. Um, uh, yeah, I don't really know what to say because there's a lot to uh, unpack. We can. What I can say is that it, you know, well, this episode of of um, of intensified conflict started on October 7th with uh, the terrorist group uh, Hamas's attack on um, uh, on Israeli civilians near the the Gaza border. Um, which then was met by a very, very violent uh, retaliation by Netanyahu's government. I do want to precise Netanyahu. I feel like it's good to just not yeah, put no. everyone in the same bag. Um, um, yeah. But yeah. Well, I think it's important also maybe if we're looking to discuss that to a certain extent, maybe to delve into the, the historical past because there has been a lot and there is a lot. That's why it's such a, a complex uh, topic to approach. Um, it all started, well, right after the creation of the state of Palestine, um, as some of you may know. So there have been a lot of Arab uh, conflicts with Israel before. And so Israel has adopted this very defensive policy, um, which we can see like unfolding um, to a certain extent right now in Gaza uh, and around Hamas. So that's why the response is very violent because, very violenced, sorry, um, because there's like a form of um, history, like a past behind it, which also justifies to extent um, a certain ideology as well. It's also because the recent government of Israel is very like right-handed. Yeah, absolutely. And it's all about destroying Palestine. Yeah. Um, well, for instance, on that matter, I think it's. I just discovered this recently. Actually, I don't know if you guys knew. Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu 
actually, if you look into where he comes from, um, what his background is, it just so happens that his brother used to be a Israeli a covert op, and uh, he died in combat fighting against uh, Hamas, I think it was. No, 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 no. no, no. Um, so he was actually, it is a very interesting story, and there is a movie which I recommend people watch. Um, it, he was the only person to die during the, um, I don't know how it's called in crisis, English, yeah. a hostage crisis in uh, Entebbe. I think it was in Angola, but I'm not sure, so that would have to be checked. But a essentially a plane was... It was with uh, uh, Idi Amin, I think. Hmm? Idi Amin, so... Yeah, where was where was Idi Amin? Uganda, maybe? Yeah, yeah Uganda. Uganda. Um, so uh, it was a, a, actually a very successful um, hostage rescue operation, um, and uh, but the only person to die in combat was Netanyahu's brother. No, it didn't have anything to do with Hamas. I think it was, um, like... I think it generally was like an anarchist or something. It was very, it, yeah. I, I'd have you'd have to look into it, but it's it's there is a great movie which isn't Israeli or from <laughs> yeah. a country that would have like some sort of um, savior bias to to put into the movie. But yeah, it's 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 quite it's quite interesting. It was a flight I think from the uh, or not from Argentina, but that had a lot of Argentinian Jews and et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, voila. Um, and yes, I wanted to go back on the. Uh, the far-right government. I just wanted to precise uh, that um, and the fact that, I mean, sadly, most governments, even the, the, the most um, chill, this is not a great word, <laughs> uh, but even the most chill um, uh, governments in Israel do, in the Israeli parliament, do tend to still uphold, of course, uh, the same, relatively the same discourse when it comes to... Um, uh, when it comes to Palestinians, uh, then again, that's that's public opinion. That's not something that you'll necessarily change. But it is, it has to be said that Netanyahu's coalition government is uh, is a pat- particularly violent one, uh, especially compared to his last ones as well. Um, he has the support of the like far extremities of of the Knesset, which is uh, the Israeli Parliament, and uh, for example, a known. Uh, not necessarily member, but I, yeah, I, I think yeah, a member of the the Knesset, uh, Itamar Ben Gvir, is um, like a, a, a complete. A, he he is completely crazy, and most Israelis will admit that. Um, and it also has to be said that in the last year, within Israel, ignoring it, yeah, ignoring um, tensions with Palestinians, there has also been um, internal strife uh, regard, regarding Netanyahu's uh, plans to change legislation. Um, yeah, and certain things. So there, there's. It's been it's been extremely tense, and uh, we've seen most Israelis go in the streets protesting against Netanyahu. So mm-hmm. it is good to keep in mind that public opinion um, right now does not see Netanyahu as uh, a savior. Yeah, uh, he has for... a really low, I mean, popularity rate in Israel because he's also criticized. You know, even though he was. Um, very defensive of Israel and in his policies, you know, very aggressive. Um, for instance, like he pushed a lot the colonization of Cisjordan. Um, is that how you say it in English? Uh, West Bank. West Bank, sorry. Um, anyway, so heavy colonization there. And it's kind of a trend that we've been seeing ever since, uh, well, the death of Yitzhak Rabin, pretty much. So for those of you who don't know, Yitzhak Rabin was the prime minister of Israel. And it was a time at the time, you know, when the PLO, was it under Clinton in America? Yeah, I think so. Anyway, so around that time, pretty much, there was um, Palestine and Israel growing closer. You know, the idea of like a two-state solution and peace was, you know, 
very much considerable, and he was unfortunately assassinated. Right, so ever by since far right by by a far right Israeli, it's good. To, it's good to say as well. We're not picking any sides here. What we're trying to do is uncover what's been going on to better understand and better approach like this complicated topic. Although by no means like do we claim to know. I think like even the most hardened specialists on the subject nowadays are clueless as to like the real reasons or justifications behind certain aspects. Uh, so I'm very interesting, uh, interested to know um, what you guys think with um, kind of expressing our approach uh, to thinking about such questions. Like how much do you think historical context plays into our, um, our understandings, our preferences or, you know, politics? Um, and I think it's also because I, I'm not... I don't really I obviously I don't know as much as you guys um on this and you know like what what do you think is like so obviously this started off as a religious conflict um how much do you think religion plays a role in this now do you think it, it leans more towards political or is it a combination um so nowadays a lot of people tend to say that it has nothing to do with religion um uh and I I would actually, I'd actually say the opposite to, to what you said. It didn't, it didn't necessarily start out religious. Uh, there are different forms of Zionism, uh, and the one that created Israel was political Zionism. Theodor Herzl, um, late nineteenth century, um, and then within religious Zionism, it's essentially just the return to Israel, which is in the Torah. So that's been there for like five thousand years. But um, not saying it's justified. I'm just saying that that has been there. In, in that book, the controversy. So just different, different branches. So no, essentially, um, at the start, it was more, uh, no, it, it was more a political movement to uh, to try to establish, well, to establish the state of Israel in their quote-unquote native homeland. Um, There's a big territorial aspect as well, which I think should be taken account, like into account. This is ultimately about territory, about. Um, you know, the site of Jerusalem, for instance, like if we take it as an example, it is sacred to all three religions. So Christianity, Judaism and Islam. So um, territory, I think, also plays a key role. And on that, we can also delve into the notion of sovereignty. Right. And um, what do we see as sovereignty? And if we start questioning sovereignty in this issue, we're also brought to question the international uh, stage right what does the international stage view as a sovereign state we've seen um very clearly with the invasion of ukraine that ukraine is a sovereign state um that the west uh western democracies back that you know and it's been very clear very obvious um in the case of israel and palestine it's a bit more troubled and so that's why i think territory plays such a key role not only in the conflict but also how we approach it interesting so i like that you brought up the idea of sovereignty and so so what do you think is israel's relationship with other arab countries right now and how does sovereignty play a role in this um now how sovereignty plays a role i'd have to think about that a bit more its relationship with other arab countries i mean you've we've seen the the abraham accords i think of 2019 2018 1819 good old trump uh that was a joke i will <laughs> that was a joke um no yeah we've seen we've seen the accords uh which essentially established um diplomatic relations between israel uh bahrain the uae uh, uh sudan maybe yeah and uh, morocco um now realistically uh 
they didn't really have to do with sovereignty or wanting to accept Israel. The public opinion there very much remains anti-Israel uh, and pro-Palestinian. Um, Although Saudi Arabia. That, that we're we're gonna we're gonna we're, we're gonna come to that we're gonna come to that but essentially no concessions were made the reason why those deals did happen uh, were because uh, the U.S. essentially did um, I think for Bahrain uh, there was the question of installing a certain U.S. base I mean like there there or at least um, uh, lending them a fleet so, some, something along those lines so no it's very much a um, ooh how do you call it when you trade something for something else. Yeah, sure. It's um, transactionary. Like I, I yeah, forget the word, but yeah. So no, it, it really isn't that much a support of Israel um, as much as the acceptance of the actual status quo um, and um, and getting certain things in exchange. And for Saudi Arabia, I can I can let Rodrigue talk a little bit about yeah what's going on right now. Um. So by the way, Yellow's cookies are <laughs> delicious. I just like to point it out if everyone like wants to try them. You should do like open a big shop or something. I've been told that before. Yeah, no, big shop should should be considered. Um anyway, back to what we were saying. Um so it's interesting to look at how dynamics have been evolving in the Middle East. So I'd say and then Charles you can like correct me on this cuz you know more about this that the dynamics of power in that region there's like a few key players so israel is one of them um israel is kind of the united states ally in that region and so it's kind of the u.s's way into like such a key region um you know for economic reasons obviously there's oil there's gas etc so it's a very rich uh region in itself Uh, lots of people want um what it has and so you know great powers will are drawn to it so the u.s has kind of secured its foothold with israel in that region um you know there's a lot of u.s interference um whether it be you know even right now the u.s selling israel weapons etc um there's a lot of trade going on there um another key player to mention is iran so iran is a shia country um, the two Shia in English, yeah. Sorry, the French pronunciations are just getting out the way. Um, yeah, there's essentially a few branches to Islam, and two main ones are Shia and Sunni. So, um, correct me if Sunni, Sunni. Oh God. Anyway, um, it's it's not our first language word. <laughs> yeah, sorry guys. Um, Shia countries, so Iran, for instance, um, Sunni countries, Sunni countries like uh, Saudi Arabia. Um, so there's also like religious differences, even within like, the same global religion, and that does play a lot into influence games. And then another actor I just mentioned is Saudi Arabia. So Charles, if you want to evolve onto these power politics and how they've been changing. Um, um, yeah, I'll, I'll mention a few things. First of all, the whole Sunni-Shia divide, I, I don't, it applies, it applies. Um, it, but I think it applies mainly where you see um, proxy conflict between the two. Uh, so in Iraq and um, in Yemen and in Syria, you'll see that be uh, you'll see that divide actually exist um, religiously between little militias, nothing crazy, but just some militias. For example, some of the ones who fought ISIS in Iraq were Shia, um, and that was a big part of their. Uh, of their identity, but no. When it comes to the relations between Iran and, and Saudi Arabia, I think the fundam- one of the fundamental fundamental uh, things that they fight over, quote unquote, is that they both declare themselves um, like the centers of Islam, the leaders of Islam. Um, 
and um, and of course that that would create certain tensions. I I don't think that the dogma necessarily plays um, a huge role. I mean, Saudi Arabia, even if they had Sharia law, well, actually, it's 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 it is better now in the sense that um, it isn't a strict MBS. Um, it hasn't been a strict at all. Um, but they're not they're not that Muslim. I mean, you see you see certain things uh, that clearly don't indicate. Um, uh, that they root all of their politics in Islam. Um, I think the major thing right now is nuclear. Um, Saudi Arabia is extremely scared of Iran getting, uh, well, obtaining um, successfully enriched uranium and being able to, well, I think they already have the enriched uranium, but being able to build an actual bomb, which they can. They're the largest country in the Middle East, or at least right after Turkey. Uh, oh wait, no, and Egypt, um, and they have they have a lot of their own engineers. I mean, they are they're very much capable. Um, Saudi Arabia's Saudi Arabia is quite scared of that. They can't contest. They are pop their population is much smaller. Uh, they don't have the expertise. It would have to be exported. It's just not feasible. Um, and part of the rapprochement with the U.S. and maybe with Israel, and I'll get into another aspect as to why they probably got closer, is. Um, is is that very real threat? Uh, not that they could necessarily that they would bomb Saudi Arabia because I mean that would just be a complete nightmare. Um, but more so the idea that the second they reach that level uh, as a nuclear power, it just it'll it'll change everything. It'll change. Yeah, everything. I mean absolutely. We've seen it with India, for instance. Um, you know, reaching that nuclear power, um, it does play a lot. Um, you're not gonna be waking up one day and finding that you know um, this country has nuked this other country it doesn't happen like that nuclear deterrence is well much more about deterrence but it's also asserting that you have like an ace in your you know in your cards so it definitely does play into power politics and that's important to understand even if like the card is never played it's there right and that's why there's so much concern of like we're switching completely but north korea for instance you know like japan is terrified of that as well um so it does play a lot it's a key factor so the nuclear aspect is definitely um, very very interesting uh, especially in that region which is already like so unstable you know it's kind of like the balkans of today pretty much um the balkans is a region like kind of in southeast Europe, um, I would say, which during the 20th century was a huge melting pot, 19th century as well. It's where kind of nationalism was born. Um, we owe them the First World War, so <laughs> that's kind of the comparison there. Not saying it's going to evolve into a global conflict, but um, simply like very what, unstable. What I found quite disturbing regarding Saudi Arabia mm -hmm. in the recent years is how they're actually limiting the production of oil just to take advantage of the current inflation and current that really high oil price because if they do pump the maximum production for the oil the oil price will go down and that's not beneficial them they want the maximum um, profits and they're actually limiting oil price and that is actually a bargaining chip towards negotiating with the united states and uh, obviously, obviously israel in the sense because you know israel kind of represents the united states in the middle east to negotiate uh, as a bargaining chip it's like if we can actually allow Saudi Arabia to uh, produce maximized oil production or reduce inflation, also kind of cr uh, crumble the Russia economy as is based off oil, and they will definitely lose the war with Ukraine if that actually happens. I think that's a very fair point. Um, we've seen, you know, with the war in Ukraine, especially 
that energy is key, right? And to bring in, again, the theme of sovereignty, right? Most countries, what they actually seek, most great powers, what they now seek, their main priority is their, like to be autosufficient on energy, to have sovereignty over their own energy. Um, in the case of Germany, to stretch this to Ukraine, um, Germany was reliant a lot like a lot on uh, Russian gas, right? Um, there was the Nord Stream uh, gas pipe, right, which ran around the Baltic, uh, the Baltic Sea and supplied, you know, um, Germany. Because Germany, ever since Fukushima and the Fukushima incident and Merkel's policies, has always been very anti-nuclear. Whereas, you know, other European countries like France, for instance, you know, have embraced uh, nuclear energy, you know, for their own sovereignty. And so, um, well, you find Germany having to end up relying on Russian gas, right? And when the war breaks out, it's a huge dilemma because it's hundreds of millions a day, you know, that are going straight into the Russian economy, straight into the Russian army, that means, and going against Ukraine, right? So that issue of energy is, like, key to understanding global politics. Now more than ever, I feel, um, you know, we've seen just what lack of energy can do um inflation has gone up like whether it be in the uk uh in other european countries it's crazy right it's a huge bargaining chip and saudi arabia knows that right they're willing to bet on it which makes them like a key player um in our western democracies as well the the big thing is that we are democracies and at the end of the day what matters in a democracy is the economic status right that's what keeps a president in power most often and if a president, you know, has great policies, has been doing really well, you know, whether it be socially, culturally, in terms of international relations, but if the economic standards are not met by the nation and there's high inflation, high unemployment, you know, and possibly because, you know, of energy problems, then that president is outed, like, immediately. It's happened so many times. Um, you know, 1973 oil shock in France, for instance, you know, our president was doing pretty well, and then that came about. You know, he had to be kicked out um, and he wasn't reelected. So it's a huge political tool. Um, it's interesting to see how that's going to evolve, you know, with um, as we lessen our reliance on carbon energy. Right. Because um, these countries like Saudi Arabia, who have huge stocks of oil, might not be able to sell them, you know, as much anymore. So they're going to have to reinvent. And Qatar is doing this really well, you know, investing in green energy, uh, for instance. But in the near future, I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. Relying, I, I think people will still rely on carbon energy in the near future. It will not definitely be in this decade. And I think it's quite interesting that you mentioned Russia and Germany's relationship right after the war. Because, you know, Turkey, on the other hand, being part of NATO, being part of Europe, um, EU, they actually just ignored, like, ignored NATO's, NATO's, ideology of yeah. you know anti-russia they just you know they allowed russian tourists they allowed purchasing of russian goods and services is like they just their own little identity over there yeah no absolutely uh, charles do you want to build on that a little um sure well first i want to say it's not in the eu uh important distinction but there are trade deals to make oh yeah yeah there are trade deals there are trade deals um but um i mean it also kind of comes down to erdogan um the the current re-elected uh president um who's just a good old a good old populist uh and i i don't know enough about um about his policies but what i do know is that uh, as much as he does want to reap the benefits of of Europe, of of NATO, as much as he can, 
um, he does remain quite opposed. I mean, he's he's tried to set himself up as like the, in a in a sense, like the second Qaddafi, um, being the sort of leader of the Muslim world in defending, for example, uh, well, not defending, attacking. Uh, the Charlie Hebdo scandals, et cetera, et cetera. It's just he's he's clearly trying to. There's a big middle ground role, which I think he's trying to get Turkey to embody. You know, even if you look geographically, right? Turkey is a country. You know, used to be the Ottoman Empire. Um, it is in between Europe and Asia, right? It is right on the edge of the Mediterranean. So it's a country that's you know been constructed historically on. Um, evolving through differences, you know, uh, different, like getting in contact with different people, different cultures, etc. And it is very good at that. And that is what Erdogan is kind of doing. What he's trying to do is place himself as a middle ground. Um, you know, for instance, um, I think Ankara hosted some negotiations, etc. with Putin. Um, there's a lot of that, which you see kind of everywhere on the international stage. Um, people, countries want to be the ones who bring peace. You know, they want to be seen like that. Um, President Macron, for instance, in France, insisted a lot, you know, he would phone Putin every day, even though, you know, it's arguable that France's, France's place in the global hierarchy, right, of states isn't, it's high, but it's not, you know, it's not the U.S. by any means. So one would be questioning that, but there's a real ambition from these countries, right, to have their own line, right, to not stand behind the U.S. or behind another country, um, like China, which is what I'm thinking about, or Russia, and kind of bring forward their narrative, right? Make themselves a key player in the conflict that's ongoing. And that's what Erdogan's trying to do. You know, he's um, at the same time, you know, maintaining relationship with Russia, like economically, um, socially, culturally, et cetera, whatever you want. Uh, and at the same time, also within NATO, right? And that the Americans hate more than anything, you know, because if you're in NATO, you're in NATO. Uh, you, you're either against America or with America. And so there's this whole thing which is kind of critical to his role. I think he's quite clever in the sense that how he plays this out, you know, um, not getting into domestic policies or anything, because that's a whole other issue. But in like making Turkey a key actor on the international stage, I think he's doing it quite well. It has been, yeah. He has been constantly denying the entry of Sweden into NATO. Yeah, <laughs> yeah Phil has been agree upon yeah. that. So, yeah, I know, um, and also the fact that Turkey, from like history, is a very important trade route through their um, canals. What's it called? The Bosphorus. Yeah, I did want to say one thing because uh, Rodrigue kind of brought it up. Um, was he's. He, I mean, when I say he's a good old populist, he really is a good old populist because one of the things that he has essentially done or that he embodies is, um, which is the case for many countries who have gone through a high of um, an incredibly important, large, powerful empire and then downsizing to... Well, Turkey is still yeah, a large country, don't but people understand how big the Ottoman Empire was. It was huge, yeah. and it was huge for a very how many long times time. do you think about yeah. the Ottoman Empire? Is what I <laughs> ask people. Uh, uh, no, but it's um he he kind of embodies this hope for uh, a renewed Turkish glory, um and and he he does that very well. He uses religion. He, um. I mean, just all techniques. I mean, it's it's all populist techniques that 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 would make sure he, he ends up gaining or amassing public opinion because um, economically speaking he is like his he's he's driven turkey like in 
uh, into a complete. Uh, can I curse? I don't know if I can. <laughs> uh, so, no, I was gonna, so, so, oh wait, we say Turkey now. I forgot about that as well. That's that's another example of trying to <laughs> of trying to separate themselves uh, exactly and differentiate themselves from the food, but. Um, yeah, I mean, people have continued to, to vote for him because he does embody, he embodies, the, you know, Turkey's strength and dignity and whatnot. And, um, and I feel like that's, it, it, it's, it's pretty clear. Um, it's, uh, Turkey's actually quite predictable. It might seem like it's not, but it, anything that won't benefit them, um, they won't allow any concessions on. Uh, they're very much set on, um, being the people who, on, on being the state that imposes, their uh, uh, their rules before others, which which is I mean uh, technically from like a, a country like any country's perspective, that's kind of like the dream. So you know he's he's doing pretty well. But um but yeah, it, it does explain uh quite a few of his actions, um especially regarding NATO and and Russia, etc. And then I I don't know enough about Turkey's um domestic policies because uh, there's there's so much going on there's still Kurdistan I mean they've 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 they continue to bombard uh Syria and Kurdistan um they've uh, Kobani etc I mean it's uh, the PKK with French missiles by the way <laughs> yeah oops uh, <laughs> Uh, but, but yeah, yeah so, so it's um which isn't talked about, but there's that that's also part of by the way, a Turkish identity, et cetera, um renewing that glory and making sure that the Kurds never <laughs> never fight back and uh and don't gain independence and whatnot um but yeah, uh Syrian Turkey Kurdistan, by the way, just saying that you know they have a very well they have a pretty well established system, they actually do kind of threaten. Uh, the Kurds do kind of threaten Turkey a lot because they they manage to establish very like relatively successful and peaceful um, societies, whether it's in Iraq or or Syria. I just wanted to put that out there. Shout out, yeah, Kurds. And like delving back onto like history and you know this idea of a nation, right? It's important to distinguish state from nation in these conversations. Um, what we mean by a state is a political entity, right? It is an actor on the international stage. It is a government. You know, it is a representative. It is sovereignty. It is borders. Nation encompasses, you know, this this national feeling that you have, the the, the sentiment of belonging to a country, right? You know, patriotism, um, history, culture, etc. And in the case of Turkey, I think that nation-wise, it's kind of stuck between two things, right? There's the past, the glorious past of the Ottoman Empire, you know, and there's also the future, right? And Turkey's trying to find its place in that. But you find a lot and a lot of contradictions. Um, you know, if you think about the Armenian genocide, which was now about 110 years ago, 108, 7? Well, it was in 1915. I'll let you do the math. According to Turkey, it never happened. Yeah, exactly. So there's like this um, creation of a historical narrative, which justifies in turn, you know, the, the ambitions of Turkey on world stage, right? And its place in the future in modernity. But at the same time, you know, that construction of that narrative is omitting some, you know, unfathomable details of, of the past, which is that, you know, the Armenian genocide, for instance, the fact that Turkey still hasn't recognized it is why it's still not being considered like to become an EU country. That's like the main thing that's halting them in the decision process. It's it's what's being said. Yes, you it's, know, there's other factors. There's and I remember our teacher in um, <laughs> in high school who was very clear about it, and she's right. I mean, they 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 will never admit a majoritarily Muslim country, especially one that is that has 89 million people. I mean, they would become the most populous 
country in the EU, which would give them the most seats. So essentially, the worst idea for uh, for for what people deem the EU to be. I mean, it would it it, it would it, it'll never pass. Everyone would 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 oppose it. So would probably um, places like you know, Bosnia or Albania, which. Yeah, uh, which wouldn't yeah. ever be considered. Um, yeah, I just want to put that out there because that it, it is always in discussion. It's been in discussion for a while, but it's it's never gonna happen. No, no country will ever let that slide. I mean, this thing, this goes similarly to Japan. They have not acknowledged what they have did to China during World War Two. Yeah, the massacre and the experimentation on the Chinese people and oh, race. Well, if you give if you give like the Black Death to children, they'll have the Black Death. Like, oh my God, crazy experimentation, guys. Yeah, no, there's like a very dark past of um, Japan, which you know it's quite incredible when you think of it. Um, after 1945, and I've actually, um, if I can recommend a series on Netflix, I think it's still here. Um, it's about the Tokyo trials. So, um, you know, Nuremberg obviously happened in, you know, 45. It's called Stranger Things. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's not that one. Um, Nuremberg, you know, we've heard a lot about. But the other one which we didn't hear about is, um, you know, the Tokyo trials. Because officially, the war, uh, Second World War, doesn't end on the, you know, 8, uh, 8 of May, 1945. It's September 2nd, right, 1945, with the capitulation, unconditional surrender of Japan, right? So... The Tokyo trials in question, um, a bunch of like the best judges from pretty much every Western country come together and decide to judge all war criminals, right? And there comes the presence, you know, obviously the question of Hiroito. So Hiroito was uh, Japan's, uh, well, Prime no, the, the no, general. no, like the the big guy, the oh, god. Was he the yeah, he was oh, the emperor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Who, who was Sorry, who was the the, the the bad guy again? Like the oh uh, well, I mean, there guy. were a bunch of them, but there was this ma- this one general was known to be the the dude. I'll look him up real quick. All right. Well, um, anyway, in the meantime, um, Hirohito, so his place comes to be questioned because he is technically the ruler of Japan, right? And so the question being asked is: Is he responsible for Pearl Harbor? Is he responsible for you know all these events for continuing the war, etc.? Does he have a political pre- uh, presence, or was he kind of manipulated by the generals, um, you know, the people who were ruling at that time, the army, etc.? Um, and you know they thought about it really hard, and they found that pretty much yes, he was involved into all these things. He gave his agreement. He was behind it. He was you know let's go, you know let's invade uh, you know China, etc. Let's like attack the United States. Let's commit war crimes. Um, but the issue was this, that the emperor plays such a key role in, you know, Japanese society at the time. He's like what they look up to. They see him as a god, you know. Um, there's this whole cult around him that if the Americans were to condemn him, right, then Japan would inevitably, like, inevitably crumble because so much of Japanese culture, history, uh, political legitimacy organization is be- you know based around the, the emperor and the, the figure of the empire that if you treat him as a human being and if he's subject to international law by you know a foreign power especially like you know America who they've been to war with for three uh, four years that's the whole issue so they decided to you know vote him innocent uh, condemned everyone else and Japan was able to carry on and you know you know, it's quite miraculous when you think of it, like what it was and what it is now, it's like mind blowing. And so it built itself like that. But 
again omitting you know some some details of the past and like that's a recurring theme with countries i feel you know we were talking about turkey um turkia <laughs> and now japan but the same could be said for like a lot of different countries you know um the usa you know did a lot of bad things as well um yeah do you want to intervene charles yeah no i i wanted to say that this kind of leads to a thing that i've talked about with my dad and my godmother who my godmother um lives has always kind of lived in in england or at least for the past like 25 years or so more actually and she said that one thing that's really interesting about British pride, which you find essentially, you find in Turkey, you find in, in Japan and in other places, is that they've never admitted to their wrongs. Um, and the countries that haven't admitted to their wrongs remain some of the, like, the most nationalistic, patriotic countries. Um, and the countries where we see, quote-unquote, a patriotic deficit, which, by the way, isn't, is, isn't easy to quantify, so you, you know, it's... It's a pretty harsh statement to make. Um, or the countries who have apologized for the things they've done. Germany, considered not patriotic. Uh, France, uh, for um, what happened during the Third Second World War and the Algerian War. Um, um, and But the countries who haven't, so the USA, um, the UK, Japan, Turkey, um, China, but it, but it keeps going. Azerbaijan, like it, it doesn't, it doesn't stop. And those, uh, those remain very strongly patriotic. And I think it's been made clear for uh, those countries' presidents and those countries' leaders that, um, at least the populist ones, <laughs> that doing that is at least they might see it as condemning, um, condemning patriotism in their country. Um, and, and I feel like it, it says quite a lot about um, the reasons as to why they might not. Uh, something I, I don't agree with. I think you can rebrand patriotism to be proud of something else. And like also, I mean, you know, being proud of admitting that you've done something wrong, you know, may sound a bit like cliche or like, I don't know. But like, I mean, in my sentiment, you know, in what I feel is that there is a sense of pride behind that. And if I'm, you know just gonna make a quick link here to africa which we said we'd be discussing right um as a french person you know french and britain have a lot of history in africa colonially speaking um there's a lot of faults to be had with colonialism like you know colonialism itself is a concept you know being wrong for instance and france for instance is often called upon um, by African states to apologize for its actions, right? Um, apologize for colonialism, apologize for this, apologize for that. And the government won't do it. So there's that question as well, because France, the nation it is now, just like the UK, the nation it is now, would not be that had it not been for colonialism. So if you agree politically to say, sorry, uh, we were in the wrong, that means that you owe compensation as a result, right? Uh, which could be just about anything, you know? <laughs> we don't really know how far that goes. And also, you're kind of negating what your country was built upon, right? Or at least that's what, you know, most people would be brought to think, um, you know, that maybe we shouldn't have all this, all these things we pillaged from the African continent, um, which leads to, like, really complex and dynamic relations between colonies and, like, former colonial countries and powers. In the case of Africa, it's quite blatant. Um, you know, France um, developed a counterterrorism mission in 2015, 2012, 2012, I think it was, um, to fight terrorism in the region, um, you know, uh, jihadi groups, et cetera, et cetera, and assist African states who were having trouble. So that lasted for a while, and uh, inevitably, you know, inevitably what happened is 
although providing, you know, certain results and like, yes, kicking some, you know, jihadi groups out of the region, France was kicked out, right? Because there's this sentiment of um, what we call France Afrique, which translates to French Africa, right? Um, and that notion that there's a neo-colonial enterprise that's going on, right? And that, you know, we're pillaging, um, you know, us former colonies, uh, former colonial countries, sorry, pillaging again our colonies, right, by having military troops on the ground, which doesn't bring back great memories, if you know what I mean. So there's that entire question as well, which is to be delved into. And once again, you know, sovereignty, national identity, narratives, I think, is something that we don't talk about in international politics and in the construction of nations, which are like, you know, crucial elements to our world and our life. Yeah, I mean, just I, I, I'm not sure exactly how much time we have left, but um, when it comes to, to Africa, everything that we've seen recently, um, especially in Mali, Niger, uh, Burkina Faso has done that a while ago, but essentially they've rejected French influence. Um, now, it, it does have to do with neocolonialism. Uh, it does have to do with, uh, for example, the CFA franc, the money that they... Mm-hmm. Uh, that they would use, uh, which essentially dictates depending on the type of franc. There's the West Central African franc and the the Central one. Um, essentially dictates that that they should lock their money in uh, French uh, the French Treasury in Paris, and that they will then invest that money. Except they barely they they, they barely invest it, and there's barely a return. Um, so certain countries that are already quite established, like um, Senegal, Cote d'Ivoire, are actually um, have actually changed that. They're they're they are withdrawing from it, um, and that should be implemented in twenty twenty seven. But the countries who are a bit more unstable, um, like Niger or Mali, um, I I'm I'm not exactly sure whether it is just because they don't like France and there's an anti-French sentiment or uh, because they are partly u- utilizing it to uh, to justify a certain operation. A lot of the time, uh, it kind of bounces back and forth. There's there's um, another factor. No denying that France right. has a new colonial enterprise, but it doesn't seem like the only reason as to why they reject France is necessarily because they hate what happened in the past. Mm-hmm. A lot of those the people in those countries have family uh, back in France. I mean, it's... Relations are much more complicated now when France has, um, it, like, in it, when those countries have an insane diaspora within within France. It's just it's it's really complicated to talk about. Yeah, um, I think just one last element on that is also the uh, interference of foreign nations, right? Um, for instance, Russia is known to play a huge political game right now in Africa, and is notably, you know, Wagner troops are in Africa. Um, pillaging Africa. Uh, Not anymore. Well, <laughs> let's just say that, you know, there has been a, a turn of events, but um, there are still Wagner troops in Africa, although they're rebranded with the, the Russian army. And um, that is, you know, at the request of, you know, the, the juntas in the various countries, right, which rely on Russia um, and request them to fight terrorism, right? But what Russia is actually doing in these countries is spreading, you know, an anti-former um, colonial hatred, right? Um, And a lot of the claims that are being made, um, you know, are fake news, right? Um, If you look at a lot of the protests, it's always organized by Russian people. So there's a lot of that influence because, you know, Russia is a key, um, sorry, Africa is a key continent with like, it's gonna be the most populated one uh, in just about 2050, I think. Um, So there's a lot to play here, economically speaking, it's a project for the future. And not only Russia, but, you know, obviously China as well, which is, 
taking over every single harbor on the on the East African coast, right? I think the issue with China's investment of the Belt and Road Initiative is a lot of infrastructure they actually build is is quite useless to to be to be truthful here. It's quite useless. It's just in a sense, it's just debt for the country, the African countries to repay to China. That that is literally the whole point. It's just it is what. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I just want to say, yeah, it's, they call it debt diplomacy. But, um, but yeah, it's it is also kind of sad to think of Africa as being a plan for the future when they they're literally just being taken advantage of by, um, I mean, including France, just literally every um, every every major country out there. Um, but, but yeah, I'll, a lot I, of job, a uh, lot of you know work coming up for us international relations students. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, there's a lot to be said about that as well. Very promising future careers for diplomats. <laughs> I also want to note that I have just pulled an all-nighter. So if I sound a tad dead or said something a little off, please, it's it blame it on the lack of sleep. I swear. Right, thank you. That concludes today's episode. We've definitely had a lot, a lot to, to learn, to think about. Um, so we've covered just what constructs, constructs the idea of the state, of nationality, um, and how intricately the like past histories, past historical narratives play a role in this. And also like the struggle for, for energy, for military power, for financial power in the world. Um, Okay, so I hope this episode has provided uh, you a deeper understanding of the current political landscape and diverse challenges and opportunities that each of these regions face. A big thank you to our experts, I guess, (laughs) (laughs) Rujik and uh, and Charles. Self-proclaimed experts, by the way. I do not (laughs) (laughs) self-proclaim. Who joined us today to share their... Uh, valuable pieces of information it's clear that the world of international politics is ever-changing and staying informed is a key to understand the global implication of these changes um, yeah i just want to say thank you um it it was very nice it was very nice uh, you can't see this but there is a candle there were cookies there were flowers so this is very yeah, very nice ambiance very ambiance. romantic i will say for the four of us it's great i feel a bit closer to you guys now you know after this this thorough discussion yeah there was a lot to unpack um definitely a lot to think about as you said yellow um but yeah i mean these topics are really interesting they're kind of you never get over with them, right? There's so much to talk about. We try to present like a certain viewpoint, right? So our word is not to be granted, uh, taken, you know, as the, the holy word or whatever. But yeah, it's important, I feel, to share your opinions when it comes to these subjects. You know, talk about people. Um, no, sorry, talk with <laughs> talk with people um, about you know affairs in the global world because you know it it does affect us at the end of the day. Um, and just a quick, I just, well, I already said thank you, but I also wanted to say. Um, yeah, please um, do do your research before you talk. We, I tried to only talk about the things that I I knew of. You know, I wasn't gonna dive too deep into into certain things. But especially at the moment with with everything going on everywhere, I'm not just talking about Israel Palestine. Um, I just recommend you read genuine sources. Um, if you deem some to be too Western or too uh, non-Western, um, there, there are always there are always some good sources. Um, so please, that's just that's just the main. Do thing. your research. Do 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 your research. Yeah, that's it. That's it. <laughs> Thank, Thank you, you so much. Us. Thank you so much yeah. for having us. Yeah, it's definitely um, important to to have both sides of the research as well. Um, 
But anyways. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye. Until next time. Bye.